you push somebody until they are cold and dead and accept no substitute other than American soldier go home. You don't give up and, until God is tapping you on your shoulder and saying, I got this, man. It's beyond you. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Joe Alderetti on War Docs. Part one is currently available on all major podcast venues. For more information about Dr. Alderetti, please check our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. You're currently the director for the Center for the Intrepid, which is abbreviated the CFI. And for those who don't know, in 2005, Arnold Fisher and the board of directors of the Intrepid Fallen Heroes proffered a rehabilitation facility. Secretary of the Army Harvey accepted the proffer and funds for the facility, and these funds were received from over 600,000 Americans. It exists now as a four-story, 65,000-square-foot outpatient rehabilitation facility. Tell us what it is like to be a military orthopedic surgeon treating wartime injuries on the battlefield and also treating them at home during their recovery. You know, Wayne, that probably was one of the things that has taught me more in my reconstructive career than any textbook, any lecture, any symposium. Just seeing the, the fruits of your labor in the optimal reconstructive environment is one thing that I would share to every surgeon, every orthopedic surgeon. In full disclosure, Alex Smith was my swan song patient, and I have recently transitioned the surgical directorship to one of my young partners who will hopefully take it to bigger, faster, stronger envelopes. The, um, the idea of having a director and a surgical director is that one individual can focus on the, you know, the beans and the people and paying the bills and the other person can facilitate the patients that keep the experience alive. When A.J. Johnson asked me to take over after a recent deployment in Kabul 2015-16 timeframe, um, Intrepid was seeing a little bit of a crisis of identity in the downswing of hostilities with the you know official cessation of hostilities in 2014. So it turned out that only the, in significant numbers, only the operators were getting hurt Obviously, uh, these guys are my family, so I took it very seriously that Intrepid was going to become, again, the institute that would be the special operations go-to rehabilitation for complex injury. And so we facilitated uh, kind of a three-tiered program where, you know, there's a bachelor's level of rehabilitation that you see in any physical therapy and occupational therapy clinic around the country, and that the master's and the PhD levels were usually the either elite athlete or elite operator where they said, I want to get back to kicking indoors or Olympic triathletes, you know, highest level special operator, or in, in one of our recent cases or the first return to the NFL after catastrophic tibia fracture. So that, um, that was the experience of a lifetime, Wayne. It was, uh, you know, for an orthopedic surgeon to engineer the reconstruction and then also to 
quarterback the rehabilitation, knowing that you have been part of somebody's anatomy and part of these rehabilitation experiences and guys like Shagoon, Alamajobri and Marie and, and just these incredible therapists teaching me so much about elite rehabilitation, being able to integrate that all together allows us to spit out a product that to me is the best in the world and, and second to none. I think that institution can provide such a level of hope and wholeness in patient cohorts of individuals that have knocked it out of the park in getting back to life and saying, I will not be broken, that even today, amidst all of our current crisis of identity, she's still the lead battleship. What are some of the incredible innovations that have come out of the CFI? Several of the processes that I will take with me into my next career, and I will say that unabashedly, I I will steal every essence of what I've learned over the last five years to hopefully spread the Kool-Aid. So there are things like blood flow restriction therapy, which Johnny Owens, my dear friend. Describe what that is, Joe, so people understand what you're talking about. One of the most painful ways to work out in your life is with something restricting your venous outflow. So it's basically working out under a tourniquet. We allow arterial inflow, but don't allow the majority of venous outflow. So you work out in a lactate-rich, pH-depleted environment, which is better for your muscles in terms of overall power, but painful as hell in that you're able to provide a great, uh, a greater amount of micro-tear and micro-damage that spurs local and systemic growth factor for less energy expenditure and less weight. So if I have somebody that had their leg blown off or I did a big distal femoral reconstruction on, I can't allow them to squat 300. But for half of that weight in a blood flow restriction environment, I can get the same amount of growth. Johnny uh, brought that to the intrepid system and it's taken it now into the civilian communities and to the most elite sports complexes in the United States and around the world. So that, that has revolutionized the way we do extremity rehabilitation. Some of the advanced technologies are the Alter-G therapy unit where you're running on a treadmill that puffs up your running or your weight-bearing apply, uh, aspect so that you can gradually subtract away percentages of people's body composition or their weight. So if there's somebody that say, hey, I just reconstructed your pelvis. I can't fully weight bear you. I'm going to say 30 to 50%, but I want your mental and and your neuroplasticity to remember how you run. So you can still facilitate advanced levels of athletic activity on this unit called Alter-G, even in almost weightless status. We also use a great deal of computer-based therapy. So the Karen uh, you know, that that whole military performance lab at Intrepid is basically like Disneyland for rehab nerds. We all just get crazy about what we can do in studying somebody's gait as one of the best initial gait labs in the United States. But Karen is a 360-degree domed rehabilitation environment where we put you on a treadmill where it's subtracted from the rest of the room except for the servo that keeps the individual upright and balanced. We can either unbalance them or balance them. We can provide 360-degree visual stimulation as well as auditory and sense of smell. 
to a degree where we can simulate when you got blown up in Afghanistan. So if you were one of my operators that was going to get back to halo status or uh, get back to kicking in doors in the desert, then that's part of their graduation programs. They go through the care and, and go do lanes out of Camp Bullis. But that was part of that PhD aspect of individual rehabilitation where this computerized assisted environment could directly simulate either areas that we needed to tweak further, very much like a flight simulator, you know, you crash and we say, okay, we have to tweak the way you pitch or roll. In rehab, it's the same way. You look at Doug's hamstring, you say, hey, that's not firing quite the way I would like in order for you to run and assault a building. So I'm going to take another four weeks and play in this regard. So it allows one to get very nerdy with human physiology and just an incredible tool. But finally, behavioral health. There are a number of unbelievable behavioral health assets in that building. They have all, all taught me a great, great deal. The process of use ketamine in both rehabilitation in opiate transference or the ability to put one's Percocet down for good, even after having been on it for 10 years. But the mental aspect of sports performance and uh, Ben Kaiser's program at Intrepid is unbelievable, has taught me a great, great deal and uh, allows the orthopsychiatrist in me <laughs> a little bit at, at base levels. And it, it just allows us to participate in the human aspect of rehab, which is this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, help me get up. And that happens to our, our wounded soldiers or our cancer recovery every day. I mean, coming back to that level is unbelievably challenging as a human being. So you've experienced not only amputations and amputees on the battlefield, but also when they come back after their injury for their rehabilitation. What are the limb injury patterns seen from the 20 years of war and what is unique in regards to battlefield amputations and amputee recovery? You know, I I think um, the most unique uh, stigmata of the kind of 9 to 13 time frame, when I was most busy, dismounted complex blast injury, where they would be high bilateral amputations, some sort of pelvis cleaved in half like a cauliflower, usually thoracolumbar injury, penetrating chest injury, They would lose, if you're a right-handed shooter, you would lose your extended left arm, fingers of your right hand, and then hopefully not, but in many cases, a uh, a head injury as well. So those patients have always stuck with me. And and luckily right right now, the creation of osseointegration, Captain John Forsberg is also an orthopedic oncologist for the Navy and Kyle Potter went to Europe to train under Ricardo Renamark. His father is the father of osseointegration in facilitating skeletal reconstruction directly to the amputee limb, can facilitate independence and power in a way where people are not dependent on sockets. And so if you can imagine uh, when you have both your legs blown off high, you can't fit in a conventional socket. Most of these guys were doomed to a wheelchair before OI. Kyle and John very wisely brought that into a human clinical trial. And then uh, we all saw the writing on the wall as their experiences continue to hit home run with, uh, you know, amputee independence and bilateral weight bearing when some of these people hadn't been weight bearing in eight to 10 years. So that's kind of, uh, that's the 
the quintessential battlefield injury to me that was most challenging in getting them off the battlefield outside of a body bag and then rehabilitated in early days. And now many years later, seeing some of them put their crutches aside and ambulate with minimal aid and hug their kids and and just do things as weight-bearing individuals upright as God intended us to be in the first place. There are plenty of times where I would walk out of the Intrepid and be participating in somebody that I operated on on the battlefield and sit down and put my head in my hand and go, man, I do not deserve this. What would you say is the most amazing case that you've been involved in that you've seen from the initial injury phase all the way through rehab? And you just say, this is absolutely amazing and unbelievable from where they were to where they are now. Two cases. One would be wartime and one would be near wartime. One of my early bilateral dismounted complex blast injury was in 2009 in Jalalabad, a a young ODA EOD technician that unfortunately got too close to a blast envelope and was knocked off a mountain escarpment and couldn't be evacuated even by the guys that were probably one of the best aeromedevac units in the world, the gypsies out of the 101st. And uh, they did eventually get in after a seven-hour extrication. And this kid had used both of his tourniquets and was able to needle decompress himself on one side and somehow got to us in the Ford surgical team with a pH of 6.7. And if I remember right, he had a lactate-based deficit that was in the teen, something close to 18, 19. So coded multiple times in the trauma bay. But somehow Eric got him back. And after we just were pouring blood, and at that time it was factor seven that the SF units were carrying instead of TXA, and just an extremely, extremely aggressive push to the trauma bay or to the OR instead of, you know, mentally vacillating in the trauma bay on on why this kid's dying. We dove into the operating room and uh, and Jimmy Johnson was our CRNA at the time that was dropping lines as we were all dropping chest tubes. And I was controlling extremity bleeding as well as diving up to the chest. So had a below knee amputation on one side and what we had to convert to an above knee amputation on the other side, pelvic injury, chest injury, and luckily not an airway injury because, uh, you know, this was an FST and just, man, we, we were busy at the time. But would swirl the toilet multiple times and try to die and we would all stand there. In fact, I still have a picture that I use in lectures of, you know, above all, this is life over limb. If they're dying and they're bleeding out of an extremity or pelvic injury, take care of that. In some cases, that involves resolving somebody to an amputation or a higher level of amputation. This kid did fantastic, made it out, made it through Bagram. And then when I was a fellow, almost a year later, hunted me down at the Mayo Clinic and said, thank you for saving my life as an amputee who was in a BK prosthetic on one side and an AK on the other and just using his sticks, but he was ambulating. And, uh, man, uh, you know, right there in the middle of the Gonda building at Mayo proper, I, I lost my mind. I had to sit down and say, holy cow, I, I can't believe, I can't believe you did that. But he made it, uh, his goal in life to meet 
all of his surgeons say thank you. That's one case that has stuck with me in that you push somebody until they are cold and dead and accept no substitute other than an American soldier go home. You don't give up and, until God is tapping you on your shoulder and saying, I got this, man. It's beyond you. The second case is obviously Alex Smith, NFL quarterback, having suffered a catastrophic tibial injury in this kind of Camelot of experience that we are right now, where we, we can reach out and touch any of our colleagues, mentors, mentees around the country. Robin West, uh, you know, you, everybody's seen the story on, on 60 Minutes, Sports Illustrated, or whatever new work. But, you know, what, what you don't see is I know what it took for Alex to wake up every day and say, I, I'm going to run one step further. I, I'm going to ignore pain one more iota. And I'm going to achieve what everybody else says I should not. And that very much just like every soldier, every person around the country should not accept just the status quo from us as physicians, surgeons, therapists, whatever. Alex came to us with the trust of, hey, I'm not sure this is possible, but can you help me? And then when it comes time, do you really think this is feasible? And as one of the most elite athletes in the world, that tibia fracture and that soft tissue injury, given that, and Alex wouldn't mind me saying this, he's got no anterior compartment and about 40% of his lateral left. Most people, 99% of the people in the country, in the world, would have called it a day for that, man. That takes too much energy to generate a run. But this guy beat everything, and probably because God told him to. Having worked with the Center for the Intrepid and all these remarkable technologies for rehabilitation, and it's truly amazing to hear these stories of recovery of people who are injured or with amputations. With these significant rehabilitative advancements, when is a primary amputation the right answer? Wait, you know, from a textbook standpoint, I should be telling you catastrophic calcaneus injury and heel pad avulsion. I'm currently managing a patient with just that right now where his heel pad is somehow alive. And Carlos and I, despite coming to us with a very checkered past, I have a heart for those individuals. And he's put his trust in us and said, if we can do limb salvage, let's keep going. Because I I have a feeling that you can generate a better limb than a prosthetic. The true answer to that is called limb optimization. Every patient comes to us with a goal. That can be, I, I want to run in six weeks, in which case, you know, limb salvage is not going to be your reconstructive algorithm. Or I, you know, I just want to get back to going to HEB, or I want to get back to NFL play with my extremity. So there, there is no right answer and there is no textbook answer. I would say that the loss of two neurogenic input in orthogonal compartments, so let's say anterior and posterior, the likelihood that you're going to have a meaningful reconstruction of that extremity is not good. However, I, um, having said that, I've resected 17 centimeters of sciatic nerve in the face of tumor or trauma, and then watch these people hike or run the Grand Canyon. I'm taught every day that I help people facilitate their goals. If somebody is sick from an infection standpoint or dying from a wartime standpoint of an extremity near amputation, then that extremity is coming off and I'm not going to take a second look. At the same time, if they're 
in our environment right now in the United States and somebody says, hey, Joe, will you swing for the fence from a limb salvage standpoint? The answer is yes. If we get in trouble, I'll be the first one to look in your eyes and say we should transition to amputee optimization because it is certainly not a failure of limb salvage to transition to an amputee. It's just a different form of reconstruction and should be seen that way. Each patient is the right answer, each individual, and whatever they want, we do. Looking forward into the next 20 years, what kind of advances do you imagine in this area of limb salvage and amputee care? There are a couple of holy grail in terms of limb salvage. We all think of bone defects in the old days as what drives the train to amputation versus limb salvage decisions. We've gotten so many bone void fillers and all trained with you know wonderful guys like Joe Shu who can manage Lizeroff frame reconstruction like nobody's business, create bone where I never thought possible. But where it comes to nerve injury, especially segmental nerve injury, segmental being something greater than seven centimeters of nerve gap or volumetric muscle loss, that is a a massive envelope to recover from. So um, the nerve reconstruction research that I'm currently involved in with PEG fusion is a way that we cellularly fuse nerves at time of injury. Hopefully, if this works, this would be one of the biggest advances in nerve reconstruction in the last 40 years maybe 50 years, um, from the advent of plastic and hand microsurgical reconstruction of nerves under microscope. We are with this same consortium that I'm participating in with the PEG Fusion Group. We're growing muscle in ways that were either porcine-derived or from embryologic enlage. So hopefully in limb salvage, in 10 years, you'll have a nerve gap I'll put a cellularized allograft in between. I'll fuse it like we were welding, and you will have motor function at time zero, which negates all sorts of volumetric muscle loss and downstream atrophy issues. And then, oh, by the way, if you take an you know, AK round through your quad and you lose 10 centimeters of it, no big deal. We'll grow you another one. And then uh, finally, from an amputee perspective, we're learning so much in osseointegration. The E-OPRA device and the possibility of doing neural input to an integrated skeleton is so close, it's ridiculous. So, you know, hats off to guys like Forsberg and Potter and Sousa, who have taught me a great deal in osseointegration. But I hope to get closer to Luke Skywalker. Doug, I, I believe that from an amputee perspective, that scene in Star Wars where Luke is doing this, playing with his hand, you're going to see in about 10 years. We often ask our guests to kind of think about the next generation and the following generation. So let's say 50, 100 years from now, your family, they're listening to this. What do you want them to hear? What do you want them to know? I want them to hear that that all those nights that I came home, like I missed them dearly and they were on my mind every second. My wife is still my favorite person on the planet and she always will be. She helps me be a person that I would not be without her in terms of a human being and as a, as a humane surgeon, somebody who can sometimes get lost in the physiology and forget there's a person on the upside. And that's kind of what, what I would hope to leave my kids in the next generation or the next 10 generation of surgeons 
we in 20 to 30 year cycles focus on the machine. In other words, focus on the system, whatever sexy widget we have in terms of air traffic control space. You know, we, we create these great processes, but we forget the people that are the reason why we became physicians in the first place. So every time Alex would call back or Kelly Elminger would say, hey, can I do this triathlon? Do you think it's feasible? The, the ability to take a minute and say, yeah, from a reconstructive and a rehabilitative standpoint, you can. And for them to say, thank you, I trust you. Thank you for just putting your energy into my life. Those are the things that we should be going back to. Systems are great and we need them in order to function as physicians. But the minute we forget the leadership of people and taking care of people, might as well be mechanics, not denigrating mechanics. But sometimes the car talks back to you. My patients, I laugh with, I cry with. They're uh, they're the best experiences and, and incredible parts of me. So getting back to what we want to continue to facilitate, embrace the human experience and be human. Don't afraid to fail. Well, Joe, I just want to say thank you for spending time with us on the Wardox podcast. We really appreciate you sharing your experiences and your insights. Thanks again to Dr. Joe Alderetti, orthopedic superstar and hero on Wardox. Gentlemen, my honor. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate you both. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Wardox Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.